0: So, for instance, we spend a lot of time concentrating on the issues of terrorism and migration. Both of these two things are businesses. In fact, they're two of the biggest businesses in town.
1: Welcome to the third season, yes, I said the third season, of Global. I'm your hostess, Francesca Gortzunian, and on this 25th episode, we will be talking about Libya. First things first, though, we have some cool new changes coming to our podcast. Don't worry, though, we will still be highlighting one country per month. But we will also be adding short 15 to 20-minute thematic podcasts once a month. Here's the thing, though each country is different and has a very different story and context... Themes of corruption, human rights violations, lack of citizen-centered governments, and elections gone wrong have been weaved throughout each of our episodes. So we will be taking those themes and breaking them down a bit more. The thematic episodes will be short. Our producer likes to call them podlets. I'm not even sure that's a real word. But we really do hope that you enjoy them and want to know what you think. So please don't hesitate to give us feedback on this new format. I also want to thank our listeners for being with us for three years. We've covered everything from large countries like Russia to small, lesser-known countries like Timor-Leste. We've interviewed Nobel Peace Prize winners, heads of state, journalists, and elected officials. If you've enjoyed your time with us, we ask that you share this podcast with your friends, because this is how people hear about global. And also, please don't forget to review, because we always welcome your feedback. So now that that's all done, let's get on to the fun part. To get started, let's talk a little bit about Libya's background. In terms of location, it has the Mediterranean Sea to the north, you have Egypt to the east, and then the vast Sahara Desert to the south. It really is not a small country. It's Africa's fourth largest country by area, and is about three times the size of Texas, with a population of 5.7 million people, or slightly larger than Colorado. Libya's ancient history is endless, and although our podcast is not going to focus on that, I really do encourage you to read up on it because it's really fascinating. For this episode, we're going to start in 2011, right after the fall of strongman Muammar Gaddafi's regime, and right at the point where Libya became increasingly unstable, divided, and violent. We're then going to map out Libya's trajectory ever since that point. So to tackle these issues, we invited three guests to our podcasts, And these guests include Dr. Frederick Weary, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and has literally written the book on the struggles facing Libya since the fall of Gaddafi. Second, we'll have Christopher Livsay, a foreign correspondent based in Rome who has reported extensively on the migration crisis and its effects worldwide. He recently traveled to Libya in 2018 for a PBS special on ISIS and migration in Libya. Our third guest is Taziz el Hasseri, She likes to go by Tuza. She's a municipal employee in the city of Zawara and an active member of Libyan civil society. And finally, IRI's Caitlin Deering-Scott our program manager for our Libya portfolios, will be joining us at the end of these interviews to provide a little bit of commentary and feedback. First up, we have Dr. Frederick Weary. (music) Dr. Frederick Weary, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It really is a pleasure having you on Global. My
2: pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank
3: you.
1: You obviously have a very wide breadth of experience in the Middle East and North Africa region. I'm just curious, how did you get into Libya. What sparked that interest and what led you to where you are today?
2: Yeah, it was actually something of an accident. I I got sent there as a military reservist in 2009 uh, under Qaddafi to work at the embassy with the U.S. government. Then I went back um, in 2011, right before the revolution, and then I went back again after the fall of Qaddafi as a civilian, as a researcher, and just to see that contrast was was so striking to see the effects of of revolution on on Libyan society, on people I'd met.
1: Can you tell me more about that contrast that you saw?
2: Well, the biggest thing people talk about today is the utter lack of of security in Libya today. And and that's resulted in something of a nostalgia for the old regime. And, and, you know, it was true. Under Gaddafi, I remember in Tripoli, the capital, walking the streets late at night. It was safe, but it was a police state. Um, And so, you know, what kind of peace was it? It was a you know, a place where people didn't want to speak to you, they were afraid, you know, massive surveillance. It was a classic uh, cult of personality. Everywhere you went in the capital, you saw billboards of Gaddafi's face, his revolutionary slogans, very Orwellian place, a place of great beauty and enchantment. I mean, enormous potential, um, given its wealth.
1: Right, because of the oil. Yeah.
2: Largest reserves in, in Africa. But then you look around and you see crumbling hospice streets, you know, clinics that don't function. And and people were asking, where's where's all this money going? You know, it has so much potential. So, I mean, the the biggest contrast, you know, after the revolution, especially the first year after the revolution was – a positive one where you you saw people living politics. You know, there were there was this preparation for elections after the fall of Qaddafi. People were free to speak their mind. They were organizing themselves into civil society, into political parties. You had, the place was sort of coming alive. Then of course we know what happened and it, it collapsed. And so now there is, you know, a sense of, of despair. It's obviously not as violent or as Yemen or Syria, but it's still, you know, there's still real problems with security.
1: Can you talk me through the first election in 2012 the second one in 2014. Right. And then I, I don't even want to call it a democratic process because of where it is today. But they, they started there, right? It, they, they had the elements at the beginning, perhaps, and then it just completely collapsed. Absolutely.
2: That's one of the great tragedies. And and I mean, there's, there's no shortage of blame to pass around for that. But we do have to remember that this was a revolution that had as one of its fundamental aspirations The creation of a democratic civil state the the rebels representative body the national transitional council agreed upon that so you had the 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 death of qaddafi in october 2011 um, and and quickly thereafter you had preparations for elections Um, those elections occurred in july of 2012 they were by all accounts fair transparent and then before that you had municipal council elections which were also very fair and and legitimate you know, to be in Libya at that time, there was a sense of, of great hope. But the problem in retrospect, as we know from the literature on elections, is, you know, holding elections so soon after a conflict, it risks a return to conflict. And so there were some warning signs in retrospect.
1: What were those warning signs? The m-
2: main one was, um, well, I think fundamentally, you this was a place that had no experience in, in democratic you know, traditions I mean people had no say in their governments I think especially you had um, the militias you, you did not have any progress during that first year on building the security sector disarming the militias building a police so what happened was you had an elected parliament that was vulnerable to militia pressure right so you know you still have guns running around and you had no way to protect this very fragile democratic entity the Parliament. There were multiple other problems that were not addressed in that first year, to include the distribution of oil wealth. The The government started going on a spending spree, spending money. What Get, were
1: they spending on at that the point? Big,
2: the big tragedy and a big mistake is they started paying the militias. Late 2011, there was a decision to start putting the militias on the government payroll, and that basically caused the militias to expand, because more and more young men who didn't have opportunities elsewhere said, you know, hey, I'm going to become a militia man and get my get my salary.
1: Can you tell me more about those militia groups that have a huge presence inside of Libya and clearly a lot of
2: power? This is a phenomenon that sprang, of course, from the revolution. I mean, these militias, some of them fought against Gaddafi, but many of them arose after the revolution, and, and that was due to these payments that started. Sometimes they were formed along town lines, sometimes in certain neighborhoods. Some of them had an ideological orientation. They were Islamists. Some had sort of a tribal character but they they're really a presence in some cases they are fulfilling a security role as sort of police because there are no police in other cases they are predatory they're behaving as mafias and that's that has been the real problem in the capital of Tripoli where these militias have carved up the capital into fiefdoms they're exploiting the black market they've basically captured the economic institutions, and they've been profiting on it. So I think dealing with the militias is partly a economic problem. You've got to reduce their access to the funds, the funds from the central bank, but also the black market and smuggling. But it's also political. You have to have a political agreement for these young men to put down their arms. For, there has to be political trust. When you look at Libya, a small population, 6 million people, homogeneous, it's, it's mostly Sunni. You don't have stark ethnic divides like the Kurds or the Shias in, you know, like you do in Iraq. But there, but there are divisions. East of Libya, there are differences from the west. There are different tribes, and their role, I think, was inflated by Qaddafi. He, he played the tribes off against one another. He favored some of them. He, he gave them land. He gave them positions in the security services. And that's classic dictator strategy, right? We're living with the results of that today, you know, in the divisions and, and animosities that we see. But so much of the disarray that we're seeing today is the fruits of what Qaddafi did. I mean, he ruined the country. 42 years of, of over-centralized rule, you know, running it as a kleptocracy, mm-hmm a personal bank account empowering these favored tribes his sons you know playing people off against one another a police state where there was no public trust but it as i mentioned there is a small population so there is some you know communication and coordination which gives you hope for for you know some guarded optimism
1: between the split governments between made. yeah
2: exactly and and families i mean it's it's you know everyone seems to be sort of 6 degrees removed you know it's mm-hmm. sort of which is hopeful
1: yeah well can you talk a bit more about that split with these two competing rival governments yeah
2: yeah it's it's very complex but but you know fundamentally it started in the summer of 2014 when you had a real security crisis in the city of Benghazi that was partially due to radical jihadists but also criminality, and so the city was you know, in a state of almost war, you had a military operation that was being launched by this figure called General Khalifa Heftar, who was a one-time ally of Muammar Gaddafi, defected, worked for the CIA, and then came back to Libya. His story is very interesting. The short version is he launched this operation in Benghazi. And it quickly sort of escalated into a national conflict. And you had very quickly a division into the West, which was, you know, based in Tripoli. And in the East, General Heftar's allies set up their own government. You know, they, they tried to set up, I mean, they had their own parliament. They tried to set up their own central bank. So, so the basic, you know, thrust of this is the country split with two sort of separate coalitions of militias, two banks, two legislatures and the, i mean the tragedy is these divisions have really hardened over the last few few years
1: and how do these divisions present themselves locally and from the municipality level
2: well in some cases it's it's a it's a positive story because you know the media gives us this picture of libya as as complete chaos and violence and of course the islamic state the migrants um, you know militia fighting in tripoli but you go to certain towns in parts of libya and, and the municipalities work. I mean, there is a degree of service delivery, of security. I think municipalities, by their nature, are predisposed to sort of overlooking those national-level conflicts in, in their day-to-day and, you know, delivering things to their constituents. So, you know, I mean, obviously the, the municipalities are split. So the ones in the East don't have any interaction with the ones in the West. And the problem also in the East... Uh, this area under General Khalifa Haftar is some of the municipalities are not elected. They're militarized. So oh. the army is running things in the east of Libya, and the army has appointed military officers to be running those those towns, which is, I think, quite worrisome.
1: I know you mentioned at some point that there's a certain feeling of nostalgia because of how, how things have just disintegrated so much. When you were last in Libya, what was the general feeling among citizens? We're six years out of the Arab Spring and the revolution. Gaddafi's been dead for six years. What are people's general feelings? Is, was it worth it?
2: You do find, as I mentioned, that some people said it wasn't. I think this is natural in all revolutions, and so you you start looking at the past with rose-tinted you know glasses. And and again, it comes down to basic needs. I mean, security, and and it's not just violence, but but the pressures on everyday living. I mean, the cost of basic goods, absence of medical care. You have. Libyans that are trying to leave Libya, in some cases joining those migrant boats, because they're so desperate for medical care to get to Europe. And that's a tragic situation. Um, Those with the means have left. So, of course, people are going to look back and and say, you know, having this strong man in power was better. So this is a trend, of course, we're seeing across um, the region, the disenchantment with the Arab Spring, a counter-revolutionary, you know, authoritarian return. Um, But, but, you know, there is hope, again, for Libya. There was some recent polling done that shows that 80% of Libyans support elections still. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a complete rejection of the democratic process. Process.
1: That's encouraging. So do you think the 2019 elections will hold?
2: Well, this is the big question, Mark. I mean, the problem with these upcoming elections is, are you going to have all the things in place, voting laws, a constitutional framework, security? And I think the Constitution is key because... If you don't have that in place, you're just going to create another transitional government. I mean, you hear Libyans say, we've been in this transition period for so long, and that's created problems, right? There hasn't been a real legitimate government. And so the elections, there has to be so much that happens before
4: that.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Caitlin. We really appreciate having you on. Uh, Caitlin Deering-Scott is our program manager here at IRI for the Libya Project. So we're really looking forward to having a bit of your commentary on our interviews. So with Dr. Weary, we spoke a lot about the two competing governments inside of Libya. And I
3: think that something that would be interesting for our listeners would be to know how we got there. So the June 2014 elections for the House of Representatives were marked by low voter turnout and a significant defeat for the Islamists who refused to cede power and turned to armed force to defend their interests. So essentially, in the aftermath of the elections, there was a bit of competition about control over the government. And as a result, Two um, kind of competing alliances of armed force formed. One in the east, uh, Operation Dignity had been previously formed to counter Islamists in Benghazi who had been increasing violence in the city and kind of marketed themselves as the true uh, guardians of the revolution. In response and to address the um, insecurity threat in Tripoli, Operation Libya Dawn formed uh, to take control of the capital. And in September, Dawn militias were successful in, in doing so. And as a result, they were able to kind of expand their power a bit more in the West and the elected House of Representatives, which originally was supposed to be in Benghazi, um, but the security situation there was so great, they eventually decamped to Tobruk. In the aftermath of that, kind of over the last four years, the two sides have kind of hunkered down with the HOR affiliated with the Libyan National Army led by Khalifa Haftar, who's Mm -hmm. the kind of... They've designated him as the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. We spoke a lot about him during the interview. Yeah, And in the West, uh, obviously the government of national accord, which was formed subsequently in 2015 after the uh, UN negotiated Libyan political agreement. And the situation has kind of cemented between these two camps in the interim, despite international efforts to kind of...
1: So for anyone who watches the news on Libya, obviously there's a lot of talk about violence, but if I'm not mistaken, this violence isn't really between these two competing governments, right? Like
3: They're not fighting each other. They're just fighting politically and competing for power, right? Correct. Violence in Libya largely takes place at the local level. And as of yet, no national level politician has been able to wield enough power to kind of make attempts on the other's territory. The LNA and the HOR kind of having control over the political and security situation in the East and the GNA nominally having control in the West. That said, they do battle through proxies. They're seeking to expand their influence politically through military and violent means that often uh, manifests itself in the southern part of the country where both groups have allied with different proxies and supported different factions that were, to be honest, already fighting due to the localized nature of conflict in Libya. But both sides in the political dispute have been opportunistic about about alliances when they think that they can use violence for political game.
1: Next, we talk with Christopher Lipsay. Chris, as a U.S. journalist, you cover a wide range of issues and countries, but I know you recently did an in-depth report from Libya for PBS NewsHour. I know you've also done reporting in Mosul, Iraq. You've also covered the European migration crisis. What made you focus on Libya for this report, and where exactly inside the country did you travel?
0: Well, you mentioned the European immigration crisis, so that was probably the the biggest intrigue for me. I'd been reporting for years on mass migration, hundreds of thousands of of migrants risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get to Italy and the rest of Europe, and it always been been a goal of mine to to see the. The, the spigot, so to speak, of of this flow of migrants, which is Libya. But getting into Libya has been virtually impossible for, for the last several years. So when we finally did get visas and, and filming permits to, to go into Libya, we we seized the opportunity. The logistics were very challenging. It, it took many months. We applied for the visas in March of 2018 and didn't actually get confirmation until May. And it was... A very long and tortuous process, and I think it had very much to do with the case. The fact that that Libya is simply a failed state, and so we would get confirmation from the information ministry in Tripoli, only to find out that you know the respective embassies in the UK and and in Italy said at least that they had no knowledge of this permission. I, and we have no way of knowing if that was was true or not, and we have no idea of whether or not they were loyal to the government in Tripoli. It's 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 such. Uh, a mess, but it, it just took a lot of time, a lot of pushing, a lot of tenacity. And I, I think it was a surprise even to the Libyans once we actually got there. I mean, certainly the treatment we received was not indicative of a country that was willfully uh, having U.S. television journalists in their country. When we got there, you know, we thought, okay, well, if they're letting us into the country, it must be because they've, at least, if not gotten their act together, they at least have come up with a palatable version of the migration crisis, of the political situation, of the terrorism situation, uh, that they are ready to show the public. And we were preparing ourselves for a sort of, you know, government-filtered version of the truth. And so our prep was kind of similar to what journalists go through when they go to other closed or authoritarian countries like maybe, you know, China or a more extreme version being North Korea. Um, We we couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, Libya is simply, in order to have a a sort of state-sponsored propaganda version of the truth, you need to have a state. And Libya is... It just does not have one. It is completely devoid of all of the, the trappings of a state. So when we got there, every every minute of our reporting was, uh, was kind of flying by the seat of our pants.
1: So, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, the chaos and the warfare that's going on inside of Libya, the country is really defined by that violence that is taking place within its borders. And this is obviously complicated by the many militias that sometimes cooperate, but oftentimes compete for control of different areas inside the country. And then you have the presence of ISIS and foreign fighters on top of it. So from what you could see while in Libya, how did the presence of ISIS change, if at all, the dynamics of the violence going on in Libya today?
0: It certainly compounded the violence. We know that the Violence in primarily Tripoli is a direct result of the vacuum of power. You have more than 30 militias in Tripoli alone that are jockeying for position, and it's created this opportunity for ISIS to expand and and to move deeper into cities. So for the last several years, ISIS has been living in the periphery of Libyan life. You know, we're talking about goat herders who are, you know, herding goats 364 days out of the year, but maybe one day out of the year, do something that would be considered terrorist activity and could be affiliated with ISIS. So we're, it's it's a far cry from, you know, the ISIS flag waving, sharp video making ISIS goons that was very well organized that we saw in YouTube videos for, for many years, but they're they're definitely still there. And so when you want to look at the violence, we know that ISIS attacks are uh, about triple what they were in 2017. We see them moving in, taking advantage of the turmoil uh, in the rest of the country. And also the turmoil of the rest of the country draws away counterterrorism forces that would otherwise be paying attention to ISIS.
1: You had previously mentioned that Libya was a failed state. I I would assume that this difficulty or inability to respond properly is a result of that status, correct?
0: That's right, and the turmoil in the political realm of the country is clearly the priority of the Libyan quote-unquote state. I mean, it's hard to talk about what the Libyan response is when you just simply do not have a a clear definition of, of what the state is or the real power. So this is the priority of anybody trying to actually get the country under control. ISIS is not a priority. And what's even scarier is that the presence of Islamism is more and more visible. For instance, it is very rare to see women at all in public life in Libya. And, and when you do see women, they're covered from head to toe. They're wearing full niqabs. They're wearing gloves. They're clearly not meant to participate in, in Libyan society. This is a scary change. I mean, we're talking about a country that is right next door to... To Tunisia, where you see women wearing, you know, letting their hair down, uh, where, where it's totally normal for women to walk the streets of Tunis wearing a skirt. Uh, and we're talking about a country that's only a couple hundred kilometers from Italy and from Malta and from the European Union. I mean, these are countries that had centuries of connection with one another. And so it's shocking to see that there is such an extreme cultural effect that is seeping into to Libyan society since the fall of Gaddafi. So that also is a certain ideology that is more welcoming to ISIS, not necessarily to the violence that comes along with it, but but it's certainly reason to be nervous about the direction that this country is going in.
1: You've brought up the rise of Islamism inside the country, as well as the challenges with a fractured government, but what other challenges is Libya facing today?
0: I can tell you that from what we witness. so for instance, we spent a lot of time concentrating on the issues of terrorism and migration. Both of these two things are businesses. In fact, they're two of the biggest businesses in town. You do not join ISIS. It's more enticing to join a group like ISIS when you see that there's actual money to be made. And it's obviously more enticing to join a group trafficking migrants when you see the immense amounts of money to be made. Or smuggling fuel to Tunisia. These are all big businesses in Libya, and obviously they're all very, very illegal and could not exist if there was a proper functioning state. However, you have Libyans with no other options. I mean, think about disenfranchised youth. Right, These are the prime candidates for joining groups like ISIS. Definitely not the only ones. I mean, there are, there are other people who are, who are joining ISIS and who are funding ISIS, but they, they certainly prey on disenfranchised uh, young men. The same is true of trafficking migrants. These gangs along the coast of Libya have an enormous pool of young men who have nothing better to do, who have no other options. So. Economic despair is another big reason that's driving the chaos that we're seeing in Libya. And it's shocking when you consider the fact that this is a country that could be wealthy like Kuwait, considering the lake of oil that it's built on top of. So if the country got its resources in order and, and came up with a way of responsibly monetizing them, you would have a place like Kuwait on the on the Mediterranean. Unfortunately we're we're seeing exactly the opposite.
1: Where are these migrants coming from? Are they Libyans who are traveling out in north or are they sub Saharan Africans that are traveling transiting through Libya?
0: Today, the vast majority of migrants passing through Libya are from sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you do have a a number of Libyans who are also crossing the sea because of economic despair, but that's a very small number in comparison to the hundreds of thousands of of migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. So we're talking about countries such as Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, the, those numbers, however, as we explored in our piece, are kind of log jammed right now because of politics in Europe. So countries such as Italy, which are on the front line of the immigration crisis, have been clamping down on the entry points for migrants to to enter Europe, especially as of late, the government in Italy, they've essentially closed the ports of the entire country to migrant ships. So you've seen an enormous drop in migrants. In 2015, there were over a million migrants that entered Europe by sea. In 2018, it's it's a little more than 100,000. So you're looking at almost a tenfold drop in migration coming into Europe. But with that drop in numbers, there's been a rise in the death toll per capita. So according to the International Organization on Migration, approximately one in seven migrants attempting to cross the sea into Europe now dies. So while the numbers have gone down, the death toll has gone up. And that's a combination of factors. Like I mentioned, the closing of ports in Italy, the number of humanitarian vessels that are no longer allowed to circulate in in Mediterranean waters looking for migrants, uh, and And also, because of uh, worsening conditions in Libya, people who are just more and more desperate to leave the country, getting on vessels that are even more rickety and unsafe than before, because migrants are in such a state of despair, they're facing just the worst torture and abuse and confinement uh, that that I've ever seen and that I would wager uh, exists in the world for for any migrants today
1: how are migrants treated inside of Libya? Because this this whole issue of migration is, in fact, a regional trend, right? Across North Africa, you see these North African countries becoming um, like transit countries, and there is oftentimes such a marginalization of these groups. So what does that look like inside of Libya?
0: It's well documented that migrants are tortured, are abused, and and sometimes even, even sold, like slaves. We spoke to one migrant that epitomizes this uh, better than any. His name is uh, Hamoud Elimi, a 19-year-old Somali who came by foot across the Sahara Desert, made it all the way to Libya, paid smugglers to take him to Europe. But those smugglers sold him to a different group of smugglers where he was tortured. He told us how he was beaten and had his legs and hands bound behind his back. He said that he was electrocuted, and then ultimately left for dead. Now, he wasn't tortured for nothing. In the meantime, they were calling his family back in Somalia, or any other phone number they could give him, demanding money and saying that this torture and abuse would stop as soon as they got it. But unfortunately, in, in his case, they never got it, so they tortured him to the point of of near death. And, and as he tells it, they thought he was dead, at the very least moribund, and left him to die on the on the side of the road. He was eventually picked up by Libyan police. However, rather than taking him immediately to a hospital, uh, they took him to a detention center, and he spent days in a government-sanctioned Libyan detention center. And in that time, gangrene set into his wounds, and he lost one of his legs, he lost one of his feet, uh, and he lost several fingers. And only after that point was he finally taken to a hospital. He's still alive, he's still living in Libya, he's still trying to get to Europe, I mean he's wheelchair bound, uh, but he's made several attempts to cross the Mediterranean Sea, and this was since we spoke to him. This summer, this is a person on a wheelchair who would be fish food, quite frankly, if he fell into the sea, which is common. Uh, I mean, there's no way he could swim with his with his condition, but he's still trying, and he's still looking for a way out, but he's completely trapped. At this point, he's, he's hoping to get asylum, but with the current political situation in Europe, there's very little that uh, an international organization can do for him and hundreds of thousands of others like him. And this is a person who qualifies for refugee status, mind you. We're not talking about an economic migrant who's trying to get to Europe because he's living in poverty and, and, and can't eat enough food. Um, that's also true, but we're talking about a person who fled Al-Shabaab, a terrorist group who killed his brother and threatened to kill him and his entire family. Yet he's trapped and there are many, many, many others like him.
1: If there was one thing that you would want our listeners to remember about Libya, what would be one of those things?
0: The law of unintended consequences. That's the legacy of Libya right now, at least in the short-term history. It was Europe and predominantly France that led the charge to remove Gaddafi from power. And Now it is Europe and also France that is suffering some of those consequences of having a Libya in in turmoil. A lot of that has to do with removing Gaddafi from power, but not having a backup plan in place, not having a stability plan in place, and if it was in place, not following through on it. The instability that has come out of Libya has led to instability in Europe.
1: So in our discussion with Chris Livsay, he spoke about Libya as a failed state. What are some of the characteristics that make for a failed state?
3: So in Libya, it's largely the absence of strong state institutions, the absence of a strong central government given the ongoing divisions between two parts of the country, uh, an absence on the control over the use of force. There are a plethora of militia groups operating with Impunity throughout the country, and all of these factors contribute to Libya as effectively a failed state.
1: So, we also did talk a lot about militias and the rise of ISIS, etc. And Chris did highlight the failure of government to drive people away from joining these groups. So, how is IRI's work addressing the drivers behind so many Libyans joining these militia groups and ISIS?
3: So, the key drivers of extremism in Libya are largely historical participation in such groups. Um, okay. Libya has a long tradition of sending foreign fighters to other places. Political, social, and economic marginalization. This kind of sense of victimhood that is the legacy of the Gaddafi era, playing different groups against each other to get access to state resources. And obviously Libya's security vacuum, which creates a permissive environment for, for violent extremism. IRI is addressing the issue of extremism in the country by addressing local governance and trying to develop strong institutions at the local level that are able to include marginalized populations, bring them into the political process, ensure that they are participating in society and in politics and economic life so that they aren't susceptible to recruitment. IRI is also working to strengthen local governance to be able to deliver citizen services and improve the lives of people to kind of reduce that sense of marginalization and victimhood and create social cohesion and resilience at the local level.
1: So both with Chris and I guess throughout this episode, we've been talking a lot about Libya's challenges with migration from sub-Saharan Africa toward Europe. And that's a huge deal because it has ripple effects, obviously, on Libya but on Europe as well and the Middle East and North Africa region at large. What are things that can be done to ensure that the Libyan government is supported enough to respond to this challenge?
3: Libya is a transit country for migration and all types of other smuggling into Europe. And as with the other issues that we've discussed, the kind of pervasive governance challenges in Libya, real solutions to the issue of migration uh, will only come with, a, with national reconciliation and a strong unified state that is able to have control on the use of force, provide appropriate kind of assistance to security services, intelligence services, both at the local and national level in order to, to confront this challenge and to be a kind of leading ally for addressing this.
1: And for our final guest we wrap up with Tuza El Hasseri. To start us off, can you tell us more about how you came to work for the municipality of Zuara and what your role is?
4: Uh, I, I used to live in Tripoli. I studied the medical technician because we had this thing about if you get a specific GPA, you have to go to medicine. But I was uh, into journalism. So after graduation, I got an internship at the Libya Herald News Agency. I was an intern journalist and I learned uh, graphic design at the time. And I went back to my hometown, Zwara, which is like about 130 kilometers away from the capital. We co- co-founded, me and my friends, the first magazine. It's called Tafat Magazine. It's a cultural magazine. And with that, I gained maybe a Reputation that I'm a media person, so I got contacted by one of the uh, municipal members to come work at the municipal council at the media office. My main job is, uh, we say, digital media, anything regarding the communication through softwares. What years did you work at Libya Herald? Uh, in 2013 and the start of
1: 2014, I worked for six months. That must have been a very interesting time to work in journalism, to say the least.
4: Yes, and I got a a lot of introduction into civil society because I was mainly, my main job was to cover all the cultural events, so I got the the cool part of
1: the job. To talk more about the political divisions right now, um, obviously Libya is very politically divided. Anyone who reads about Libya in the news, that is the first thing that you see. And these divisions are obviously most noticeable at the national level, given the competition between Tripoli and Tobruk. But how do these divisions affect municipal level governance and I ask you, given your role in munici- the, your
4: municipality. First, we have to state that since we have two governments, already the municipals have to pick a government. That would say my city and the neighboring city have different governments. It's not only divided by geographical uh, geography. So this causes a lot of conflict uh, regarding, uh, would say, like we have a neighboring city and you have a project that is of mutual interest, but you have a conflict in resolutions because you have different resolutions from both governments, which causes a big conflict again, right. the word conflict. So this is one of the issues. The second issue is international organizations when they want to make a project in Libya they usually, unfortunately, have to choose one of the governments. So that actually takes out the other cities. Sometimes these cities uh, can get a lot of benefit, but they cannot be chosen or cannot be worked with because they are loyal to a specific government. So this is also, uh, I think it's very crucial thing because some uh, municipalities have uh, very mutual problems, but again, there are, it depends on which uh, government uh, they're
1: uh, in. So you mentioned that oftentimes it's difficult to collaborate between neighboring municipalities because of allegiances to different governments, but do you have perhaps a recent example of when this has been a challenge for your municipality?
4: I think we had uh, this uh, violence in, uh, against children in schools because we have a resolution that beating and violence is forbidden in schools. But it, people don't actually go by it yet. Still, some uh, children are getting beaten in school. So when we try to make this campaign, one of the neighboring cities had different government that it has not, it did not state the same resolution. So that was left out because it did not want to apply to the same resolution because it has an alliance with different government.
1: If at all, how has municipal governance changed since Gaddafi's rule?
4: That's a complex question because during the Gaddafi, we didn't have municipal councils. But uh, before 2011, it was more of uh, regional committees and it was assigned by the government. So would say in Zawarab that we have sensitivities, especially before 2011, between Arab and Amazigh people. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge matter. Uh, to put someone or assign someone, you would say something close to mayor. An Arab in the Namazir city, it was kind of an insult for both sides. So a regional committee for all like five, six cities now, there are actually now seven municipalities that were under the same... Regional committees before 2011, and it had one president that was a friend of Gaddafi. So, and it was assigned as, as I said. You can like have people from in these committees from like cities that are 600, 500 kilometers away, of, who are clueless about the city, what are the struggles, the challenges that you have in the city. There was just one criteria that you are aligned or loyal to Gaddafi's regime. So. I would say that municipal councils are new in Libya, so I wouldn't say that. It changed, actually. It just transformed, you right. would say. In 2019,
1: we know that people are going to vote for a president and parliament representatives. What are people expecting out of these 2019 elections? Do people see it as a chance for unity, or are people... Apprehensive that it will lead to additional problems.
4: We have seen uh, in the past, like seven years, a decrease in you would say trust in the democracy as general, because uh, democracy is new in Libya. In before two thousand and eleven, you had no right to, to say what government you're going to get, what rules, what uh, regulations, what everything. you So it's everything practically new. In the first elections, 2012, mm-hmm. we had like a huge turnout because everybody was like looking forward to do that because nobody had ever put their finger in it right. before. But then it started to decrease, of course, due to political division and some problems. But uh, people did not like what they voted for, even though they chose on themselves. Nobody pushed them. Nobody like we, we didn't witness a lot of violence or in 2012 but they didn't like the, the results no i don't want that what is this person that i elected because of course based on the elections we chose like cousins people from the same city we were not really aware of the criteria you would elect someone for so it was like oh i like this person oh i think he spoke very well on tv that time oh i know he's my friend's friend so that was basically the criteria to be honest but uh, the last elections were like less than 50% of people even registered. So people don't really trust this procedure anymore. There was like a big confusion in people because they're divided. Some people who don't believe that any form of democracy will probably make a good effect or take Libya to the safe side, they would say, or the peaceful side. And some people still find hope that if we had just one president, we will have one constitution, and we a lot of problems will be solved. So I wouldn't say that we have a major or one general trust in what's happen- gonna happen in 2019 elections.
1: Based on what you're saying, it seems that expectations for these next elections are really split. But can you tell me a bit more about yeah. what the challenges the governments, I say governance, plural, right, because yeah. there are two, what yeah, these so, challenges <laughs> they'll need to address are?
4: I think the biggest challenge, I think it's, um, it's actually the most crucial challenge that we face mm-hmm. if governments and municipals and people who have power uh, accepted the choice of the people. I think that's a huge step because uh, my fear, my personal fear is that you have like a person who got elected, who's popular in in an area that is not popular here. So they will feel as an insult that this person is the one who is the next president in Libya. So they will like not accept the new president, even if it was a democratic process. Democracy has a reputation and its reputation at now times. It's not really good because they believe that uh, it only causes problems. I would say a normal citizen. I have problems now more than I have before. And these kind of arguments. Right. So yeah, if we if we accepted the new president as like majority of the people chose, then I think we're fine. We're doing great. Mm-hmm. But if that did not happen, I think it will like fail the, democrac- the democratic procedure. And we're not going to believe in democracy anymore. Mm-hmm. Or elections. So like people who are going to start clapping to the next milit- military president. Dictatorship. So say, no, that's stability. what, what we, we can deal with.
1: We briefly talked about civil society inside of Libya, but how has civil society's role changed since Gaddafi left
4: power? Yes, again, civil society is new in Libya. Sure. We didn't have something called civil society before. We have like three civil society organizations that are owned by Gaddafi's uh, children. Besides that, you can find a little bit of activity from the red Crescent. Before 2011, you can barely see them, but now they are very active. Regarding that, all the, the, the civil societies in Libya are established during 2011 or afterwards. And
1: now, what has their role become in addressing main issues, such as economic issues or even peace building, right? That's a big one. What are some of the things that civil society has done to address this?
4: People who are engaged in civil society or got affected by civil societies. Here we had a theater festival for all the students in all the city zuara because it has happening for 3 or 4 years students in the city are fond of civil society because they feel they can have more entertainment more options more hobbies to go to you would find in libya and in Zwara, different kinds of set you would find one for women's rights. The only thing that it's not very common is the ones who are monitoring how the governments or how the municipal council is going or these kind of things are not very popular. You have some for monitoring elections, but almost none for monitoring governments and how the government is doing their job. In 2013, I was a part of a survey for uh, stating all the, the civil society organizations in Tripoli, and the number was thirteen hundred. But when we were starting the survey, we were like giving interviews to the people in the in the civils in the organization itself. More than eighty percent, I think seventy to eighty percent of these organizations stopped working. Why? Because something is new, and everyone wants to do something, mm. especially in two thousand and twelve. Mm. So thousands of organizations has been established in in Libya. Sometimes just to do one major event we did I was a project manager of the same survey in Zwara uh, in the end of 2013 and the uh, mm-hmm. registered organizations were was 150 but the, the the organizations that were actually still working were around 45 organizations so they kept their registration
1: active even though they weren't active
4: so for now if you if you, you ask me what are the how many active organizations in Zuará? I would say around five or six. Because it's new, people don't still know how, what is civil society. I want to do something, so I just create an organization for it or a community for it instead of just going to someone who's doing the same job. And the one uh, I think, crucial factor is, you would say, international organizations. Even though they were funding Libya, they were helping Libya, they were sponsoring all the civil society initiatives and projects. But because they're doing only that, it kind of became more of a business instead of uh, of just a volunteer part. Civil society. I see what
1: you mean. Mm-hmm.
4: And especially because we have a big gap, between the formal rate of the Libyan dinar and the black market that became the business part. Mm. So a lot of people actually are gaining their salary and on living on civil society organizations, uh, funds and stuff like that. And that's actually corrupting the civil society because yeah, the idea of volunteering and working for free is becoming less and less common. So it was was a, a lot of corruption entered, but still, uh, I think in my personal opinion, civil society have played a huge role in changing the culture of communities. Uh, and I think that's a huge role for civil societies is to, to change the idea because it takes a lot of time to change the culture. Sometimes you have a very fancy, sophisticated regulation, but people don't really respect that regulation or don't feel that it belongs to them. It's just like the constitution. If you have a great constitution, but it doesn't really belong to the people here who don't feel that it's theirs, they're not going to respect it. It's just going to be like paper, just like a lot of other things. So I think culture is really crucial in civil society's work and also initiatives that are related to peace because the idea of building a peaceful relationship with your neighborings, reconciliation is becoming way more accepted than before because of civil society, because they keep talking about peace building, reconciliation with your neighboring cities. It's not good even for you or for the future of your children to have problems with your neighboring cities or any cities inside Libya. So I think it played a huge impact on the acceptance of reconciliation for people, even for people who have lost someone during these war.
1: So, Caitlin, we just spoke with Tuza al Haseri and she spoke about the status of civil society inside of Libya, and I know that that area was very controlled prior to the fall of Gaddafi. Can you talk a bit more about how civil society has developed since 2011, and what IRI is
3: doing to provide civil society with the support that they need? So, in the aftermath of the revolution, uh, there was a real explosion of civil society organizations in Libya, and a real opening uh, with regard to the political space for civil society organizations to operate, the revolution kind of happened at a at a local level, and so it was really controlled by local forces all working together. Whether that be um, kind of human rights organizations, people who'd been activists previously and had faced significant repression for those activities. Unfortunately, the political and security environment is becoming increasingly difficult for for civil society organizations, as as you know from speaking with Tuza. Mm-hmm there is a small political space for it. We are able to, uh, to operate, they're able to receive support for their for their activities, but there are there are occasional restrictions, security service monitoring of their activities. Mm-hmm. As of yet it has not necessarily restricted activity thanks to, you know, quite honestly how brave and courageous the civil society activists that we work with in Libya are. And to add to this, an additional challenge for CSOs is the economic operating environment in the country. Uh, most CSOs are largely supported by international implementers. There's not a lot. While there is a lot of popular kind of political support um, among the population for the work of CSOs and real appreciation for the work that they do, there isn't a lot of domestic funding opportunities for this. The country, even though it's going through an economic crisis, has significant funds uh, due to oil resources and so hopefully once the country figures out national reconciliation and how to manage those resources we're hopeful that there will be opportunities to, to support these important activities of civil society
1: as is tradition with every episode of this podcast we like to wrap up with three key takeaways The first key takeaway would be just how interconnected global affairs really are and how Libya's instability is having significant ripple effects on its neighbors in the region and in Europe. And while the international community may not be unified on how to address these challenges, they do have a vested and shared interest in doing so because the impact of this instability is truly global. I would say a key second takeaway would be the role that the municipal governments fill. As we know under Gaddafi, Libya was very centralized. There was no power at the local or municipal level. And now that we're facing a disjointed and dysfunctional national government, there is a void that these municipalities and municipal governments have to fill. Relatedly, the third takeaway is the importance of solving this political crisis at the national level. This is really the precursor to addressing all of the other issues that we've talked about. And the presidential and parliamentary elections in 2019 are really an opportunity for Libya to take a step in that direction. Finally, we want to give a big shout out to all of our guests. I encourage you to follow them if you want to get more in-depth analysis about Libya and the region at large. We want to thank Frederick Weary. You can follow him on Twitter at fweary. And also a big thank you to Chris Livesay. You can follow him and more of his reporting on Twitter as well, at C We also want to thank Tuza El-Haseri for her on-the-ground perspective. And finally, thank you to IRI's very own Caitlin Deering Scott, who you can follow at C Deering Scott. And that's it for us, folks. See you next time, and Happy New Year.